toward the bar. Goal off the corner kick. Becky Sauerbrunn. Matthews and just kicked out by Becky Sauerbrunn. So good on the ball, and we have the wealth of experience that she does. I've always thought of it as, as trying to keep a good perspective that the Olympics for me was always towards the end of the journey. And so you have to appreciate all those steps leading to it. And so for me, it's enjoying the journey, enjoying the training and the preparation to get to the Olympics. Cause that's like the final exam. Welcome to Flame Bears, the woman athletes carrying Tokyo's torch a podcast celebrating the journeys of Tokyo's unsung women athletes and providing action-oriented analysis of the issues closest to their hearts. I'm your host, Jamie. Before jumping into Becky's story, let's set the stage. It's hard to imagine the games without female competitors, but before 1900, women weren't allowed to participate. Our grand entrance 120 years ago was restricted to five sports, the ones that wouldn't undermine our femininity or put our super fragile bodies at risk for injury. Croquet, equestrian, golf, tennis, and sailing. Now, while participation of female athletes has consistently risen, it wasn't until the 2012 London Games that we witnessed female representation across all sports. If it happens, Tokyo is slated to have the most female representation yet, as Olympic.org states that 48.8% of Tokyo's competitors are women. But as you'll hear in Becky's story, we still have a lot of work to do. In this episode, captain of the U.S. women's national soccer team, Becky Sauerbrunn, shares about her fight for pay equity while being on one of the most decorated sports teams. My name is Becky Sauerbrunn and I am a defender for the U.S. Women's National Team. Becky is an Olympic gold medalist and has played for the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team in both the 2012 and 2016 Olympics. Like many others, she was set to compete in Tokyo this summer. She won the 2015 and 2019 World Cup Championships and recently became the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association President. If you haven't heard of her, you should have. She captained the U.S. team in 2016 with Carly Lloyd and over the past eight years has become the rock of the U.S. defensive line. She's one of the humblest members of our superstar team and always leads by taking action herself. I will be like the steady, solid, I will, you know, reach out to make sure that you're okay. I'll pull you aside and talk to you, like that type of leader. And I think there's real value in that. I think there's value in all types of leadership. Her boyfriend Zola is the category director for Adidas Soccer in North America and kindly joined us for our conversation. And how did the two of you know each other? We actually met at the University of Virginia. We both played on our respective soccer teams and we met one winter session playing indoor soccer and kind of hit it off and then obviously went our ways for summer break, but kind of talked throughout 
And then by that next fall, we have started dating. So we've been together now for like 15 years. It's been a long time. I was thrilled with the opportunity to speak with Becky, but to also get to talk with her boyfriend, Zola, was an added bonus, as I knew he could provide some personal insights into her journey. She's a sneakerhead. She like pretends she's not, but she has like ridiculous number of sneakers that are pretty rare and hard to get. And she almost never breaks them out, but they are stacked up very nicely in her closet or uh, downstairs on our ground floor. I would say he's probably more of a nerd than people would expect. I think when he's working and with a lot of our peers, he's just kind of like, not straight laced, but you would think that he's pretty like, not as not as dorky as you would think, but he definitely <laughs> has his moments where he just goes down these rabbit holes and you're just like, what are you doing? And he's looking up some sort of random sci-fi series that's gone back from the 60s and he's just reading every single book synopsis. So fun fact about Becky is she's kind of a nerd too, which is probably one reason they get along so well. She loves a good sci-fi series and enjoys video games, her all-time favorite of which is Zelda. I've played almost like every iteration of that game that I possibly can. And to this day, I still play it on my Nintendo 3DS. And just the game itself is just so fun. It's just an, it's an epic adventure in this world of just pure fantasy. And I just can't get enough of it. I grew up idolizing players on the U.S. women's national team. So seeing Becky's dorky side made me feel way less intimidated. At the same time, she had had some truly unreal experiences and I noticed my face became sore from smiling so much after listening to her and Zola. It had been since 99, since the team had won. And there was a lot of pressure built up for that 2015. And we had a lot of expectations. And the way that we showed up through the tournament and kind of grew through the tournament, I'm really proud of. Zola has been in a relationship with Becky throughout many highlights of her athletic career. And he's had the chance to share and celebrate in many of these special moments. It was amazing. I, I think... I think looking back, actually, the most powerful moment for me was the 2012 gold medal. I was like just crying in the stands, uh, like looking at her dad. We're just like crying. <laughs> and like her dad's not like a not a crier as far as I know, but I could see him tearing up and I was tearing up. It was the first moment because 2011 had been a whirlwind. You know, Becky joined the team at the end of 2010. And then all of a sudden, within seven months, was like at a World Cup final, right? And so you just didn't even kind of register all of that. But then to do it a whole nother year and to see all the work that she had put in, that was pretty powerful. Over the years, Becky has put in a ton of work, and it's not just all on the field. Alongside teammates Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, Carly Lloyd, and former teammate Hope Solo, she filed a complaint against U.S. soccer for violations of the Equal Pay Act and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This act ended segregation in public spaces and employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Becky and her teammates charged that not only are they underpaid relative to the men's national team, despite their let's say significantly superior performance, but their working conditions and resources are worse than their male counterparts. This lawsuit addresses both of these issues. One, equitable pay, and two, equal conditions. A lot of female athletes aren't making a livable wage. 
Some of my, my colleagues aren't making enough that they can just be a soccer player on their own. They also have to have another part-time or full-time job. And so we're not, in most cases with female athletes, we're not making walking away money. And so in that respect, like we have to be prepared for that next chapter after our sporting career, whatever that is. And so we can't just rely on our athletic ability, on our talent. There has to be something else that we can do afterwards. And so I think people kind of tend to forget about that, that a lot of us are going to have second, third, fourth jobs after we finish our careers. So obviously you were one of the five players to file the wage discrimination complaint. Can you tell me about this and what your thoughts are today, given that Judge Klausner's, his recent ruling? Yes. I mean, the pay disparity has been going on since when the the women's team even began um, as a program. And it would really, it really started in 1999 when the women won that women's world cup and they started to negotiate their first CBA. So basically just trying to make a livable wage playing. So the women that pioneered and are the real trailblazers are that 1999 Women's World Cup team. And what we've done since then is just kind of try to build on that momentum. And so when we filed our complaint with the EEOC, it was really just a continuation of trying to negotiate and fight for better pay and just hitting all these obstacles. And so we thought, OK, maybe if we file this complaint with the EEOC, we'll have some government help in this. When Becky says CBA, she's referring to the women's team's collective bargaining agreement. When she says the EOC, she's referring to the U.S. government's Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. This commission federally enforces Title VII. And unfortunately, it just, with the current administration, um, the EEOC got pretty stripped down and it was taking years for us to even get any sort of ruling. And so we spoke with our lawyers at the time and we decided, you know, let's, let's file a lawsuit. Let's go for this. And that led us to where we are today with, unfortunately, the summary judgment from Judge Klossner with, obviously, we very much disagree with the ruling and are looking to appeal as soon as possible. Obviously, there are some intricacies that are going on with that because we did have two parts to our lawsuit. We have a working condition and an equal pay. And so we're now um, potentially going to trial in September for those working condition claims. Obviously, disappointed with his ruling but it's never over. Our fight's not over. We knew it wasn't going to be just smooth sailing to pay equality. So we were kind of expecting some of these, these rough spots, but we're committed to fighting all the way to the end. To summarize where we are today, Judge R. Gary Klossner of the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California dismissed the team's equal pay claims and the team subsequently tried to appeal. Judge Klossner said that the appeal needed to wait until after the remaining claims were settled, the unequal conditions part of the lawsuit, which go to trial on September 15th. Zola, when that ruling came out, what were your thoughts um, as a former male soccer player? I've been lucky to kind of bear witness to the process that Beck has gone through and her teammates have gone through on the fight that they've had. And I probably took it harder than Beck did, you know, not in that it wasn't upsetting or disappointing for Beck and her teammates, but more in that, like, I was like, oh my God, like, what does this mean? What's gonna happen? And and they were very much, it's similar to how they approach things on the field. You know, they're just like, yeah, it's just another setback. Becky, can you help me understand the difference between the men's and the women's team's CBAs? They very much rely on the argument that we negotiated the current CBA. And so therefore, we can't complain if we don't think that CBA is equal to the men's. Unfortunately, our argument for that is that 
equal pay was never on the table. And so we were never able to negotiate anything even assimilating to equality. So we were starting, you know, way below equal level there. They also are saying that the men's team play in different types of games. And so therefore those games should be valued at different prices or different salaries. And I mean, those are, those are two very large arguments that they have for us. I mean, going through depositions and things like that, they definitely try to hammer home those, those points. The men's and the women's teams have their own players associations, which negotiate separate CBAs. The women's team gets a base salary and a small game bonus for games they win, aka they don't get bonuses for tying or losing. The men, on the other hand, operate on a pay-for-play basis, so they only actually get paid by U.S. soccer when they play. So they're not getting paid if they're injured, for example. The U.S. women's team CBA protects the athletes against downside because they have a substantial base. But for a team that's dominating as much as the women's team, the CBA seriously limits their upside. On the flip side, the women's team is getting paid during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the men's team isn't. Another complicating factor is that the women play more games on a year-to-year basis than the men do, and because of their pay structure, they have to win to receive their bonuses, requiring them to consistently win in order to keep financial pace with the men's team. Think this sounds confusing? Becky is the first president of the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association, so she's right smack in the middle. When I spoke with Becky, I was curious to learn about her personal experiences, the ones that are fueling her commitment to this cause, and if she's ever personally, professionally felt discriminated against. I mean, we played our entire 2015 World Cup on turf, which for any soccer player is just, it it might seem on the outside to be not that big of a deal, but when you're playing in a premier tournament, like the tournament for your sport, and you're asked to play on subpar surfaces, it's just a slap in the face. And so that's a very glaring one to me is that our entire Women's World Cup played on turf. And I, I will bet no men's tournament, no World Cup will ever be played on, on artificial turf. And so that one is just a glaring example. I don't know how to describe it other than to say that there is a certain level of vitriol that like some of the players take just on social media and certainly just the response they get for fighting for equality. It just seems out of step. Like it just seems imbalanced compared to what say a a male player asking for pay equality might get or asking to be paid more. For example, the responses aren't necessarily the same and they don't see, they seem out of whack. It's, it's a lot of conversation or a lot of responses that are just like, you should be happy with what you have. It's hard to imagine kind of going through life with that just constant feedback coming back to you. Oh yeah, the amount of times I receive messages that, you know, why aren't you in the kitchen? You should be making my sandwich. Nobody cares about women's soccer. You would never beat a boys team or the men's team. I mean, it's it's constant. I receive it probably every single day. Just some someone on Twitter just responding or seeking me out and even just like attaching me to it and just saying something like that. So, I mean, we receive it very, very often. And it's unfortunate because even the Federation at one point, they had a very disastrous moment and they tried to walk it back. But I mean, they even argued in their own filings that women athletes to play soccer require less skill, effort, you know? So it's kind of like if they're thinking it and they're actually using it as justification to pay us less, like that just shows how 
backwards we are right now or how where we're not we're, we are nowhere near where we need to be. I took a step back and tried to better understand how financial incentives had impacted the trajectory of sport. So I spoke with someone who had dedicated the last 20 years of his life to studying this, Dr. David Berry, a professor and sports economist from Southern Utah University. Dr. Berry has spent the last two decades researching and writing multiple books on sports and economics. He's one of the preeminent scholars on the intersection of sports, gender, and economics, authoring countless pieces for media outlets, including The New York Times, TheAtlantic.com, Forbes.com, Time.com, and Vice Sports. Let's just say he's the real deal. I think one of the issues is the way we would prefer the judge to think about it is if the story had been flipped and it was the men who were immensely successful and the women were not, and you said men should be happy getting paid exactly the same as the women, I think people would go ballistic and say that's ridiculous. But the judge clearly didn't see it that way. The judge's view was, well, I think if I look at the numbers a certain way, I can argue that women are not being paid dramatically different than the men, therefore I don't think you have a case. And it's like, yeah, but the women are doing something dramatically different than the men, so why would they be paid exactly the same? That doesn't make any sense. The objective of, of the soccer federation is to build up the sport. And so you want to have it be the case that both boys and girls see a future in this, uh, which means you, you have to have an incentive to invest in skills. That being said, when you don't create an environment where women can see themselves being paid a great deal of money to play soccer, there is going to be a substantial number of girls who could become soccer players who simply drop out, who simply won't do this. One of the things that you see in in men's sports is you will see male athletes actually say at the end of their career, I never liked doing that at all. I didn't like playing that sport. I only played it because they paid me. Larry Holmes once did an interview on David Letterman about boxing and Letterman asked him, well, do you like boxing? He goes, no, they're hitting me in the face. I don't like it at all. (laughs) I get paid a lot of money to do this. (laughs) When it comes to women's sports, what you see is Typically, you're looking at women who are six feet tall, 6'1", 6'2", 6'3", 6'5". A woman who's 6'5", is similar relative to the average height of a woman as a man who's seven feet tall. If you're a seven-foot man, what sport are you going to play? You're going to play basketball, whether you like it or not. We see a lot of women who are 6'5", playing volleyball. What the hell are you doing playing volleyball? And, and the reason is, well, there's no real pay in basketball. What difference does it make? I like volleyball, so I'm going to play volleyball. When your organization doesn't create an environment where you can get paid to pursue the sport, you're not going to invest in the talent. You're not going to do that. You're not going to do the training. And so they're not going to show up. Those athletes never appear. And that hurts your sport. There's this idea that, that people have when it comes to sports that women are paid less because there's less revenue. And that's the whole story and there's nothing else to it. And why are we even talking about this? So so what happens when you look at women's sports, it's not the that you shouldn't just look at the revenue and the pay and say, that's the story. You wanna look at the percentage of revenue that's going to the athletes. Obviously anyone is gonna push for as much income as possible. And the negotiated terms are set forth in the CBA. 
Becky's leading the charge on this front. What's even more confusing about the players' pay is that while the men earn a lot from their professional teams, the women don't. So basically, their main source of income is derived from the national team and sponsors they secure there. Hence, why this lawsuit is so crucial to the women's soccer players. Lastly, Dr. Berry raises the temporal issue of fan development and the age of the National Women's Soccer League. So the WNBA today draws, you know, like 7,000 fans a game, which is, for a league that's 20 years old, pretty damn good. That's not bad. Well, National Women's Soccer League has only been around for what, less than 10 years. It's, it's a really young league. You know, if people think about these leagues now as they are mature, and they're like, well, I see 30,000 people showing up. Yeah, that's after 70, 80, 100 years. Yeah, you do. But initially, you're not going to see anything like that. It takes a long time. You're asking people to make an emotional commitment to something. And a lot of people's emotional commitment to sports comes from their parents. And if the league's only been around for 10 years, there's no parents. Nobody at 35 wakes up and says, I'm going to become a New York Giants fan. Either you were a fan at eight or you're not a fan. It's really hard. It just takes so much time and you have to be patient about the whole thing. I obviously knew that fans didn't appear out of thin air, but I hadn't previously considered how I could actually be a part of the solution. It's not like people who don't go to National Women's Soccer League games are sexist. It's just not in many cases what people grew up supporting. For example, I grew up going to Red Sox games, so I'm a fan of the best baseball team to ever walk the planet. Or people have chosen to invest their time elsewhere. So while Becky and her teammates can take action by bringing forth a lawsuit, we can all attend and bring our kids or our future kids to games and model behavior from an early age about what it looks like to rally behind female athletes. In addition to Dr. Barry, I spoke with Dr. Jenny Klugman, former fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government's Women in Public Policy Program and current managing director of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. She had compelling thoughts on the media's role in setting the stage for women's sports. I think it's much more widely appreciated now that it's difficult to be what you can't see. So I think kind of the, the mere absence is very important. But I think as well in terms of kind of modelling success, I think reaching the upper echelons in any sphere is an important symbolic as well as substantive achievement and showing that in the context of sports as well as in the context of, if you like, entertainment and, and movies, as well as in the corporate world and in politics. Um, I think in all of those domains, there's been such substantial male domination of images, if you like, and coverage that it's kind of scarcely, scarcely noticed. You know, it's been normalised to such a significant extent women and men play sports in equal numbers. You know, there's no reason why there should be this significant undercoverage. So it's a much more, I think, pernicious and discretionary take by the media in terms of choosing what to cover um, and how to cover. I do have a, a legal background. I've done a lot of work on the gender pay gap, but it seems to me that it ends up becoming a bit of a vicious circle you know, because of the undercoverage, they're not getting the sponsorships, then, you know, they don't necessarily get the numbers and the advertising revenue. And that in turn seemed to be the way in which this persistent underpayment and disparities were being justified, you know, by the management. So I think that the media is complicit 
in this, but also the executives. But it's not, certainly not an excuse for delay, but I think it's showing kind of the multiple fronts on which action is needed to be taken. To summarize, every single day, the media makes conscious decisions on what to cover. And those decisions have real-world impacts on who society values and supports. So if we're going to hold U.S. soccer accountable, it's time to also demand that our sports outlets step up to the plate. ESPN, NBC, CBS, come on, I'm looking at you. At the same time, some of you have already done some good work, and it wouldn't be fair to simply not acknowledge that. So thank you, ESPN, for your 2019 deal with the National Women's Soccer League, and Fox Sports, of course, for broadcasting the last two World Cups. That said, we can still do better. To take it a step further, media outlets respond to what consumers demand and click on. So if you're listening, this is your cue. I think we can all intentionally start consuming more media about women's sports if we actually want to see a change. We can all be a part of this solution. Becky raises some big issues in our conversation. The lawsuit filed by the U.S. women's soccer team addresses two glaring problems with women in sports, equitable pay and conditions. As we've seen, the U.S. women's soccer case isn't as cut and dry as one may think, and there are steps many of us can actually take to be a part of the solution. These are complex and super sticky issues that many continue to wrestle with. My hope is that these conversations continue to happen not behind closed doors, but instead in front of everyone. Let's just keep showing up to the table, something that Becky does best. In order for us to more fully understand the implications of these lingering issues, I reached out to an expert to better understand the history behind gender in sports. I quickly learned that it intimately ties in with race and sexuality. I am Lori Essig. I am a professor at Middlebury College and director of the Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies program as well. So you have to think, where did modern sports come from? The Olympics pretends as if it relates to this ancient Greek ritual, but of course it was really reinvented or invented in late Victorian times at a time when there was a lot of anxiety about white middle-class men becoming feminized because of their lack of labor. You have to think about what was going on economically. There was this brand new class of people, the the bourgeoisie, the rising middle classes, however you want to think of that. And they were doing something that there were such large numbers of them who were doing this desk labor. They were bankers, they were lawyers, they were professors, but they weren't out working in the fields and they weren't working on their farm. And that created a lot of anxiety that they were being feminized. And that anxiety is caught up not just in gender, but it's caught up in this anxiety about race and class and sexuality as well. So if I can just go back three steps to racial science. Racial science was really coalescing at the time in ways that put gender, race, sexuality, and class into a big hairball of a mess. And basically the idea was that the most advanced people were the most gender differentiated. This is an idea that played off of Darwin's notions of evolution, but it was really an idea taken up by eugenics and racial science. And who were the most differentiated? Well, middle-class white people. Dr. Lori Essig had just blown my mind, and not because she works at the best college in the world. Disclaimer, 
I went to Middlebury, but rather because she had just told me that people intentionally differentiated themselves by gender as a means to create power hierarchies. I had never thought of the construct of gender as a tool to classify people into levels of advancement. So the upper white cla- the upper classes, the white people who are wealthy, were degenerate. They were racially degenerate because their men were not masculine. What you see is a country that was obsessed with this, this idea that men could be feminized. And if they became feminized, they would become homosexual. And to be homosexual was to be racially degenerate. That's one of those things that's hard for us to understand from a 2020 perspective. But within the racial science of the Victorian period, homosexuals were imagined as racial degenerates. African-American bodies were hyper-masculinized, so the women were masculinized as well, which means they lacked gender differentiation. Homosexuals were imagined as feminine men or masculine women, so they lacked gender differentiation. Upper-class white people like Oscar Wilde were imagined as degenerate, whether they were homosexual or not, because they were they were effeminate because of their lack of labor. And so sports were introduced into the um, uh, middle classes in England and, and the U.S., as a way of manning people, manning men up. They were never meant to be for women. Whoops, a little bit too late now. They let us in. Clearly, U.S. soccer isn't paying the women's team less out of fear of hyper-masculinization or racial degeneration. But the systems developed and cultural associations from these early fears still linger. Now, in fairness to U.S. soccer, in many ways, they globally put women's soccer on the map. So I don't want to portray them as the one-eyed hairy ogre. That said, clearly there's work that still needs to be done. It's athletes such as Becky who bring both parties together to find a way forward benefiting everyone. I asked Dr. Essig why it's important to tell the stories of female athletes, black athletes, poor athletes, gay athletes. I wanted to know why these stories matter and basically why people should care. Her response was very insightful. I think that what sports do really well is they give us a sense of possibility that we don't get a lot in our life. And particularly now, (laughs) when things seem so grim, there's something unbelievably amazing about the human body. And when the human body reaches its full potential the way it does for these athletes, Like art, it can transform our thinking. And in that sense, I think it's really important to the human project. I think it's as important as art. I think it's as important as poetry. I think it's as important as anything we do that provides us with a way of seeing the world that is outside of the quotidian, right? It's just, it's not normal to be able to do that with your body. It's bizarre, really. And isn't that amazing? Dr. Lori Essig raised some very fascinating insights into the world of gender and racial equality, and we're seeing it played out as Becky and the U.S. women's soccer team are taking a stand and fighting for pay equity and fair conditions. Through talking with Becky, I found her optimism and boldness inspiring. She personally woke me up. And even beyond these cultural challenges we've already mentioned, we have the pandemic, COVID-19, which has highlighted a key component in being a successful athlete, resiliency. I've always thought of it as as trying to keep a good perspective that the Olympics for me was always towards the end of the journey. And so you have to appreciate all those steps leading to it. And so for me, it's enjoying the journey, enjoying the training and the preparation to get to the Olympics, because that's like the final exam. 
And so it's really, for me, appreciating all these little steps that I'm taking every single day, you know, the small goals that I set for myself and that sense of accomplishment that I get when I reach those goals. And so for me, it's really about perspective. And of course, I hope I get to be at the Olympics and that there actually will be Olympics. But really, like, it's it's all that prep and effort and energy that go into it that really has made the journey so worthwhile. In light of all the challenges facing her and many of her teammates and fellow female Olympians, Becky's advice is this. We all need to have more compassion. If there had to be just one word to kind of sum it all up, it would be compassion. I do think that it really requires a commitment to empathy and a commitment to you know, truly try and whether or not you can, you you can't all, you can't actually do it, but doing your best to put yourself in someone else's shoes and try and understand their experience and understand the things that created that experience as well. So taking time to educate yourself. And once you've done that, to also educate others as best you possibly can. And yeah, I I think that if you take those steps, it's it's steps on on a path to progress. Thanks for joining me on Flame Bears. Be sure to tune in to the next episode where I speak with Sanda Aldis on the International Olympic Committee refugee team about her experience as a Syrian refugee judo athlete living in the Netherlands. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your listening platform so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, please leave us a review. We'd greatly appreciate it. We'll catch you on our next episode of Flame Bears. This podcast was made possible with the support of the Harvard Kennedy School's Women in Public Policy Program Summer Internship Grant, along with my two fabulous advisors, Janina Matsuzeski and Kesley Hong. Thanks so much for making this dream possible.